Ecclesiastes is one man's lifelong search to apply wisdom to every aspect of life. If you are familiar with the Proverbs, Proverbs are are godly sayings about how life generally works, general principles to apply. Solomon wrote the book of Proverbs. We don't have Solomon listed as the author, but we believe he is the author of Ecclesiastes. When we come to Ecclesiastes, in Proverbs we have the general principles. In Ecclesiastes, Solomon begins to explore some of the exceptions. So some of the things that are very frustrating or vexing to him, uh, where the normal principles can't be applied. And so as we study and we look at Ecclesiastes, with many themes, each of our preachers has had a different theme today. We're looking at the fear of the Lord. But just to give you some context, we, we've had uh, a summer series in Ecclesiastes. Today it's the fear of the Lord. And we'll begin to dive in a little bit more about uh, one aspect of life that Solomon says, vanity. This is, a, this is a phrase that's come up again and again and again in the book of Ecclesiastes. And so we'll talk a little bit about that this morning. Open your Bible. Ecclesiastes chapter 8. We're going to be looking at verses 10 through 13. And we're picking up, in a sense, uh, in the middle of the book and in the middle of Solomon's uh, chapter here. And it says in verse 10, Then I saw the wicked buried. They used to go in and out of the holy place and were praised in the city where they had done such things. This also is vanity. Because the sentence against an evil deed is not executed speedily, the heart of the children of man is fully set to do evil. Though a sinner does evil a hundred times and prolongs his life, yet I know that it will be well for those who fear God, because they fear before him. But it will not be well with the wicked. Neither will he prolong their days like a shadow, because he does not fear before God. Let's pray. God in heaven, we come before you, and the desire of our hearts as we gather is to bring you praise and to worship you. God, we believe that in coming each and every Sunday, and as we gather to read and to study your word, we believe that you speak truth to us. God, there's the way that we perceive things in our human wisdom, in our human knowledge, but we recognize that when we come to scriptures, we read truth from you. We are able to move from our human horizontal reality to hearing heavenly reality. Truth from you of how life works. Of how life works best. Of what is good and right and true. So this morning, open our eyes. Help us to understand as we trace Solomon's line of reasoning and as he puts in front of us some of the frustrations, the vanity that he sees in our world. We pray that not only would we understand... But God, you would begin to transform us as we hear your truth. We pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen. Well, the title of our sermon this morning is, It Will Be Well 
for those who fear God. It will be well for those who fear God. I don't know many of you this morning as I'm looking out. Some of you I know a little bit better. Some are personal friends. No matter whether I know you very well or not at all, here's what I'll tell you. One thing I know about you sitting there this morning is that you will struggle and you will wrestle with the fact that in this life, Many times, the wicked seem to prosper. Everybody wrestles with. Whether you're spiritual, whether you're not spiritual. Whether you go to church, whether you consider yourself the farthest thing from a churchgoer. Whether you say, I'm a Christian, or whether you would say, I have no faith. For me, what is truth is the things that I find that seem to make sense. No matter where you're coming from, I know you will struggle with the fact that in this life, very often the wicked seem to prosper. And it's because we all have a sense of justice, right? If you don't want to put it in those ways, let me put it in some childlike words that you often hear all the time, which comes out about every child's mouth. I don't know where they first learn it, but it says, that's not fair. It's the same concept, folks. It's the, the desire for equality of outcomes. Why do they have that? Why didn't I get that? They did this. They shouldn't have received it. I did that. All I got was nothing. Or I got discipline. There's something that is inside of us that when we look to the right or to the left, it's hard not to notice those whose lives seem to be going well, swimmingly well. And we know, and we don't want to say this out loud, we don't want to be a gossip, but like, they're really not a good person. <laughs> the, the guy in the office that's the least honest gets the recognition and gets the raise. Your next door neighbor who you know to be, we'll find a nice term for it, not the, the most righteous of humans, seems to have all the toys, all the cars, all the things, all the clothes that you think, man, that guy looks like he's living the life. And so if there's one thing I know about me and my human heart, if there's one thing I know about your human heart, and it starts really young, we look to the right and we look to the left and we think that's not fair. If we put it in, in more biblical language, the wicked seem to prosper. Solomon struggled with this question. David, his father, struggled with this question. The prophet Jeremiah struggled with this question. The world struggles with this question. You and I struggle with this question. And so here's what we want to do this morning as we come to Ecclesiastes chapter 8. The world will give you all kinds of reasons to look around and question either your faith So if you're a believer and you're coming at this, it'll give you reason to question your faith. If you don't have a faith, it'll give you a reason to question, how could you believe in a God if the world really runs like this? Either way, we're asking the same question. In our best moments, we we think we see things clearly. In our worst moments, we're doubting, discouraged, 
wanting to leave the faith, wanting to deny the faith, or saying, I'll never follow the faith. So this morning, here's what I want to do as a pastor. I want to do two things. The first is to take a sledgehammer to that lie that we're believing to knock out that leg, to to break it into pieces so that never again, by God's grace, not because of my great sermon, but hopefully because of God's truth, that we will, will we give in to believing a lie? I will promise you, you will always struggle with those doubts and feelings for the rest of your life because you're human. But I want to take a sledgehammer to this idea that the wicked really do prosper. In addition to that sledgehammer, I want to take or to give you either a stake in the ground or a soul anchor, either way you want to say it, is I want to give you an absolute confidence in this one thing, and it is our title, It Will Go Well with Those Who Fear God. I'm going to do a little practice here. I'm going to drill this into your brain. You will walk away. You'll be sleeping, and and you're going to think, what is, is, this mantra is in my head. It will go well with those who fear God. It will go well. I was even doing this today. It will go well with those who fear God. It will go well with those who fear God. The reason I'm... Repeating that is not to be silly, but how many times do you think you will need to remind yourself of that in the coming days, coming weeks, coming months, or on your race of life? You'll never stop. Needing to remind yourself, it will go well with those who fear God. So let's take a look at our outline this morning. We just have a very short passage. In verse 10, we're going to take a look at the wicked seem to prosper. Key word there, seem. The wicked seem to prosper. In verse 11, we're going to take a look at our second theme, and it's God seems not to act. In verses 12 and 13, we're going to take a look at Solomon's conclusion. Here's, notice how these all go together. The wicked seem to prosper. God seems not to act. But here's the third point. You can bet your life on these two truths. You will get there in a second. You can bet your life, you can build your life on these two truths. Solomon doesn't leave us wanting for answers. He gives us a very firm conclusion about what we can bet about these two things. The wicked seem to prosper, God does not seem to act, but you can bet your life on these two truths. We'll get there. Along the way, we're going to dive into a little bit about what vanity means again. We need to make sure that you understand this word. When Solomon says, this is vanity, what does that mean? We're going to dive in uh, to this idea of what does it mean to fear God. We're going to explore that a little bit better. Make sure you walk away with an understanding. So let's begin this morning with our first section, the wicked seem to prosper. Look at verse 10. It says, I'll read it again. Then I saw the wicked buried. They used to go in and out of the holy place, and they were praised in the city where they had done such things. This also is vanity. 
So for Solomon, I told you for you, the same thing comes up. We will look to the right, we will look to the left, and there will be things that take place in everyday normal life that will cause us to ask this question, this idea of fairness, this idea of why the wicked seem to prosper. For Solomon right here, notice by the way he uses the plural here. It says, then I saw the wicked, they used to go in. Solomon seems to be reflecting on the many times he has attended a funeral. And the funeral honored this person who was passing away. And Solomon basically says, and I knew they were wicked. And instead of them receiving uh, uh, their just judgment, he says they were praised. He says, I used to go in and out of the holy place, and, or they used to go in and out of the holy place, and they were praised in the city where they had done such things. What, what such things? He's saying the, the wicked things they had been doing. And that's just the issue. When we look around our world, it's very easy to look at those who seem to be the most famous, those who seem to be most fluential. If we look at politics, or if we look at the the music industry, if we look at the movie industry, we see example after example after example of people who seem to live a very unrighteous life, but get away with it. Not only that, they prosper in it, And not only that, those around them, instead of saying this is not right, are praising them in their wickedness. That our world holds up these people who who would say are not role models. I'll never forget, uh, I love sports. uh, And uh, there was a very famous athlete who had got caught doing something very wrong. And so when uh, they approached him and they wanted to call him to the table and he said, I'm an athlete, I'm not a role model. And it's just the idea that we look for justice, we look for fairness, we look for those who will, in a sense, keep up the law or keep up, in a sense, with right and wrong, but we always seem to find examples that leave us wanting. That's what Solomon is wrestling with here. He says he's reflecting on the times. He has seen somebody live their life. looks here to be somebody that looks like they've lived a longer life. Their life hasn't been cut short. They weren't somehow judged or disciplined in this life. In fact, they were praised in this life. And then at the funeral, this, and, and by the way, in, in, in this culture, to even have a public funeral was to be honored. And Solomon's basically saying, that's not right. And that's what he says by vanity. Solomon says, he declares, this also is vanity. Let's dive deeper into that word vanity because we need to understand what it means. If you're going to understand this sermon, or if in general you're going to have a a proper understanding of Ecclesiastes, you need to wrestle with this word. It happens again and again. Solomon either says that's vanity, or Solomon will say that's vanity of vanity, or uh, Solomon will say sometimes it's a chasing after the wind. We have, uh, we've heard about this word. Alex has, has preached on what vanity means. One of the things that I want to express is there's no one single English word that we could use to express vanity. Your translation might have meaningless in there. Uh, I think that idea, that, that word picture of chasing the wind is very helpful for us. Uh, if we were to, to provide a one-word uh, translation, is, and Alex mentioned it, it's, it's smoke or vapor would, would properly translate this word. 
And when you combine that with it's a chasing after it's the wind, we get this idea from Solomon that there are things in life that there, we, we can't grasp a hold of. That we, we can't fully wrap our minds around. So when we look at Solomon using vanity, there's a sense, a nuance in each case where he uses the word. I think it might be helpful if you were to, to overall look at this idea of vanity as, in a sense, a set of questions. So when Solomon uses this word vanity, or vanity of vanities, is that it's referring, it, there are these things, I told you earlier, that Proverbs refers to the general principles. And that Ecclesiastes, if you read Ecclesiastes, what you will see is Solomon says again and again, and I set my mind to know wisdom. I set my heart to apply wisdom. Solomon has spent his life seeking to know what is wisdom and how to apply it. But what Solomon has found is very elusive is there these, there's this set of things where when I seek to apply wisdom, you still don't arrive at concrete answers. In a sense, what he's saying is there are Areas of life, this one right in front of us, where human wisdom will only get us so far, and I can't give you a very specific answer, a human answer. There are are things from our real life, there's things from our lived experience that defy our ability to provide an answer in our human wisdom. This is what Solomon is driving at when he uses this word, vanities. And it's the example that I've put out to all of us that we all struggle with this idea of why do the wicked seem to prosper? And Solomon says, that's vanity. He's not saying that's meaningless. What he's saying is, I can't, in my human wisdom, give you the right and proper answer. This fits into that box of exclusions. And you need to know the exclusions. Uh, When you... We're in Germany. You, uh, if, if you are international, you maybe have learned German. One of the first things that you do is you have to learn the language, and then you begin to learn there's all these exceptions. And when you ask about some of the exceptions to the rules which I have, sometimes you get the answer is, I can't tell you why there's the exception. I can just tell you how it works. Has anybody been there? We know it's actually true in language. One of the things I will tell you is, from a human perspective, I'm not saying there's no God answers, but from a human perspective, we reach our limits of wisdom and trying to clearly spell out why are things the way they are. So Solomon says, I have been to the funerals, I have seen the wicked honored, I have seen them praised, this is vanity. I'll give you another verse. In fact, if you look right below Ecclesiastes 8.13, here's a great verse that I think explains further Solomon's problem. He says, There is a vanity that takes place on earth, that there are righteous people to whom it happens according to the deeds of the wicked, and there are wicked people to whom it happens according to the deeds of the righteous. I said this also is vanity. I think that pretty much sums it up. It's not only that the wicked seem to prosper, it's the fact that, man, shouldn't we be getting the good things they're getting and shouldn't they be taking it on the chin like I feel like I have been in my Christian walk for the last few years? Shouldn't it be reversed? And that's, that, that very question is what causes this turmoil in our hearts. 
Psalm 73.3, in fact, says, I was envious of the arrogant when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. When we look around and it seems like it's not fair, what happens is our, in our heart is we envy the wicked. I do. I know you do. And we know from Psalms that the author of Psalm 73, which was Asaph, he says, I was envious of the arrogant when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. Once again, it's that age-old question. That's not fair. That age-old statement. We want to move to the second aspect, and that is that God seems not to act. So it's not just the wicked seem to prosper. It's a fact that God seems not to act. Look at verse 11. It says, Because the sentence against an evil deed is not executed speedily, the heart of the children of man is fully set to do evil. And so Solomon says God seems not to act. It's hard to to fully understand. Notice in verse 11 it says because. Solomon sees a very specific connection. Whether this is an accusation, like a theological accusation, God, because you don't act, that the wicked only increase in their behavior. Is, Is Solomon just simply making a connection? That basically, he sees the wicked buried, he sees that in this life they were honored and praised, and because the sentence of their evil deeds was never executed speedily, they simply kept doing more and more. Let's just stop for a second and think about this. Take the, the Bible out of this. Your life experience and my life experience teaches us something important. And that is rules and regulations that are not enforced are not followed. Think about these blitzers that fill our city. Oh, I love them. I can't tell you how much I've invested in the German government. Uh, I, I think I have single-handedly uh, paid the taxes for your road, so you can thank me afterwards. Uh, all the while, getting clipped for going 36 and a 30 and thinking, six kilometers an hour, really, that's where you want to get me? But the reality is, how many of you know when there's a blitzer that you will follow the speed limit in those areas, and as soon as you know that there's not a blitzer in the area, that you will return to, in a sense, to your normal programming? How many of you do that? Raise your hand. Let me get a little audience participation. Uh, And by the way, I'm not a speeder. I'm getting tickets for 36 in a 30. I'm not even trying to go fast. But one thing I know is that when I know there's a blitzer, I start to change my behavior. Now, it's not just blitzers, folks. It's all of life. That when we think that somebody might hold us accountable and we don't want to pay those consequences, then, then we will begin to, in those circumstances, keep the rules. But when we know that there aren't any, there aren't any rules going to be enforced, that we will not keep the rules. Because life basically tells you that there, there's positive and negative reinforcements. Think of the other side. Have any of you ever had to think about positive reinforcements? If, if you're a parent, man, over and over again, you're trying to think of how do I help my child pursue the right behavior by offering the right positive reinforcement? I'm not talking about bribing your kids. I'm just thinking about thinking and saying, how can I help them? If you work, I promise you, people have put positive reinforcements in your life. Either uh, you get paid more if you sell more. If you, know, if you hit this level, if you hit this level, 
There will be ex- vacations thrown in. You're going to go to Hawaii. You're going to make an extra. Right? Uh, you will receive a better review, which will allow you to move up higher in your profession. There are positive and negative reinforcements. But here's what I just want you to see. Is that if we know that's true in normal life, that when we don't see any kind of judgment or punishment or anybody holding us to the rules, and that changes our behavior, do you see that Solomon's point saying, because the sentence against an evil deed is not executed speedily, the heart of the children of man is fully set to do evil. Who is Solomon talking about? Well, he could be talking about, in a sense, human institutions, where human institutions need to, uh, to carry out sentences against evil and wrongdoing, but here's the problem. We know human institutions are not perfect. We know they don't catch everything. We know that there's corruption. We know that bribes can be paid. We know that sometimes the, the sentence of what is right is not carried out. Is Solomon talking about God and saying, God, because you don't act, it only encourages people to do more. Could that be the case? I don't want to go, get off on a rabbit trail, but bef- just so that we don't gloss over this, let me just say two things. One, Solomon's observation is true. It's true in life. We all know that. And we know it's true, in a sense, from a biblical perspective. That when God does not act to judge, that people will grow in their sins. I I will not just say that, I will prove that. Genesis 6-5, this is after creation, this is after Adam and Eve have sinned, and after Adam and Eve, we see that the world begins to spiral down into, in a sense, a cesspool of evil. Genesis 6-5, it says, the Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth, that every, listen to this language, that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. That's before the flood. If you want to know why, God sent the flood. It was to wash the, the, the earth of the sins of mankind. He said the only intention of his thoughts in his heart was only evil continually. The scripture right there teaches us an important principle. Evil left unchecked only grows worse. Uh, and so just, but just throw this out here. Any thought that through politics or through policies or through well-doing that we are going to make the world a better place, folks, you can give up that dream. That's a pipe dream. We can, do certain, we can collect more plastic from the oceans, yes. We can do certain things, but we don't get to change human hearts. Let me tell you, human hearts aren't getting better. We tend to get worse. So is it true? Yes. Why might this be true? This is where I was saying, I'll provide you some verses to think on but we're not going to explore all the theology. We need to leave Ecclesiastes, and I need to go to the New Testament just to give you a few references to why might it be that God who is good and true does not immediately punish evil. I'll give you two reasons. God is a different time frame. 2 Peter 3, 8-9, it says, Do not overlook this fact, beloved, that with the Lord one day is a thousand years, and a thousand years one day, the Lord is not slow to fulfill his promises, as some count slowness. He is patient toward you and me, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. Why does God not immediately judge in the way that we think we would want to judge? 
Well, this is where we, once again, I, t- I say along with Solomon, my human wisdom does not reach up to God's. But here's what I can tell you from God's side. God is gracious and he is kind and he desires to lead all towards forgiveness and repentance. God desires to, f- to forgive the sins of the wicked and in his wisdom, which is beyond my full grasp, God withholds judgment at times so that he can show his grace and his forgiveness and his mercy. Now, we all know that God does act, and we all know that sometimes human justice does get it right. But just so you have a box for why theologically may God not punish. The second thing I want to point out to you is Romans 2, 4 to 5, where it says God's kindness leads to repentance. In in Romans 2, 4 to 5, it says, Do you presume on the riches of his kindness and forbearance and patience? Not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance. Why does God delay? Because God wants none to perish. Because God wants all to reach repentance. Because God's kindness leads to repentance. But in this world, it also has another effect. Is that when sin is not punished, it gets worse. And you and I and the world suffers. Folks, that's the tension of living in a broken world under sin. Because the other option is, is that God never lets anything go wrong. And that the moment we might go outside of what is good and right and true, that God stops everything. And if we get to that world, then we are a bunch of robots living in this pseudo-free will that we have that God never actually allows anybody to have a thought that would go outside of what is good and right and true. And the world that God did create was that he created Adam and Eve. He gave them an opportunity to know him and enjoy him. And that just like Adam and Eve... We all hold up our little fist and there are times where we say, I will not do that. And God allows us and he allows others to suffer the consequences of those sins. Why? Because in a broken world, that's how it should work. And God will one day redeem us from this broken world and he's done that through Jesus Christ. That's a different theological trail, but I just want to at least expose you. We have to at least see that in these passages. Now let's move to the third thing. So we're going through Solomon's argument. The first thing is the wicked seem to prosper. The second thing is God seems not to act. And yet Solomon arrives, and this is our third section, on two things you can absolutely bet your life on. He comes to a very firm conclusion. One of the things that we'll do is we'll we'll take a look at what Solomon says, but as a pastor, I'm going to unpack this and, and give you a few reasons. Solomon actually doesn't give you all the reasons for why he believes this. But let's take a look. Verses 12 through 13, it says this. Though a sinner does evil a hundred times and prolongs his life, yet I know that it will be well with those who fear God because they fear before him. But it will not be well with the wicked. Neither will he prolong his days like a shadow because he does not fear before God. So here is Solomon's two confident conclusions. Let me start first with the wicked. It will not be well for the wicked. It will not be well for the wicked. Solomon's absolutely convinced. You notice he says, yet I know. Notice that that construction. Basically it says, despite the fact, or no matter how it seems, No matter whether I look right or left, no matter whether I still have some of these questions that are unresolved in my mind about how God acts, 
Solomon says, yet I know, he's firmly confident, it will not be well for the wicked, it will be well for those who fear God. Just like we took some time to look at the word vanity, let me take some time to look at the word fear. Because we need to understand this term properly. In everyday culture, I would say fear oftentimes has a negative connotation. Would you agree or disagree? That when we use this word fear, it creates some confusion. Because to say that we should fear God, we often know that when uh, we fear things, we see it as a bad thing. It's almost like the opposite of courage. And so we, we very much operate in a culture that when we use the word fear, we often mean it in a negative way. And so we need to discuss that. We also need to discuss, because it could seem contradictory, if, if using the word fear, the fear of God as a good thing can be confusing, well, it could be downright contradictory for a loving God to command us to fear him. That seems contradictory. That seems like not theological. Why does a good God say we must fear him? So let's discuss that. Best verse I could take you through is 1 John 4.18. 1 John 4.18, it says, There is no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear. Notice what it says. Fear has to do with punishment. And whoever fears has not been perfected in love. So here's what we know fear cannot mean. When we, when we talk about the fear of God, here's what we absolutely, 100% crystal clear, with absolute certainty, did I say enough to make sure that we know? Fear is not about punishment with God. It is not about the, the fear of how, what God will do when I act a certain way. That my motivation for following God is my fear of what would happen if I did. How do I know that? I'm not smart enough to tell you that. First John 4.18 tells you that. It says fear has to do with punishment. Whoever has not been perfected, or whoever fears has not been perfected in love. So we know that fear is not about fear of punishment. I want to introduce you to a passage in Isaiah chapter 11, which I think is probably, until I was studying this fear of God, I have never seen this passage in the same way. Isaiah 11, 2-3, and speaking about the Messiah, is speaking about the one who would come. Messiah, for those uh, of you who are, who are uh, perhaps not coming from a church background, it simply means the Christ, Jesus. The, the promised one, the one we are waiting for, the one who God is fulfilling his promises through. And speaking about this Messiah in Isaiah 11, it says this, The spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him, and the spirit of wisdom and understanding, the spirit of counsel and might. Notice this, the spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord. Notice verse 3, because this should turn you upside down, inside out, and his delight should be and the fear of the Lord. Can the fear of God be a non-healthy thing? Could the fear of God be a negative thing? Not if for the Messiah, when we're told that he will have the spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord, and it says his delight will be in the fear of the Lord. So rather than a negative thing, the fear of God has to be an unbelievably good thing 
for the Messiah to delight in the fear of God. So when we talk about fear of God, when we know it's actually something very healthy, it looks like delighting in God. It looks like a reverence for God that leads us to love Him. It looks like an, a, a reverence for God that causes us to want to honor Him. It looks like a love for God that causes us to want to enjoy Him, and enjoy relationship. I don't know about you, but when I enjoy a relationship, I do everything I can not to damage that relationship. There are things in your marriage, there's things with your colleagues or coworkers, there's things with your neighbors, there's things with your family or parents or brothers or sisters that you know very specifically. If I did this, I would hurt the relationship. Do you not know that? Does that not happen in normal life? And so you operate out of, with a love for that other person that says, I would not do this because I love this relationship so much that I would never put it into a place where it would be uh, begun to be torn apart. And so if we were going to say, what does it look like to have a healthy understanding when the Bible says the fear of God, it goes well for those who fear God, my best understanding is that out of a loving relationship for God, the very same kind of love that Jesus himself, the Messiah, had for God the Father, that out of a love for that relationship, we honor God, we respect him, we walk in his ways. And by the way, the reason I stay in relationships is because I love them and I know they're good for me. I don't stay in... Op- All of us probably have some relationships out of obligation. Let me go there. Yes, okay? There are some exceptions to the rule. We're like, okay, uh, yeah, I don't actually enjoy that, but neither do I want the headache from that, so I won't do these things in the relationship. But you also still know there's some things that you do to keep the relationship. So... Hopefully that gives you a better understanding. When we say fear God, it has nothing to do with punishment of what God will do if you do not obey Him. It has everything to do with the proper relationship of honor, respect, and love where we begin to live in such a way where we maintain that relationship. And I would be amiss if I didn't simply at least here make a gospel connection for you that it's only through Jesus. And by the way, when I said we, uh, we don't uh, have a fear of punishment, I should have qualified. That is for those who have come to know Christ. For those who do not yet know Christ, the Bible says you are still under your sin and you are still under judgment. Let me just make that very clear. But for those of us who have come to know God, we, we are not motivated by a fear of punishment. Why? Why do we know that? Because when Jesus came, Jesus came to forgive our sins. Jesus came to take the penalty of our sins. Therefore, for all of those who have a relationship with God through Christ, we no longer relate to God because of our sins. The fear of punishment is taken out of our relationship with God because of Jesus Christ. So for those of us who know Christ, we don't relate to Him out of fear for punishment. We relate to him out of love. We relate to him out of a fear that reveres him, that honors him, that wants to respect him and keep that relationship. So let's move to our closing. These two things. It will not be well for the wicked. It will be well for those who fear God. This is where Solomon lands. Proverbs 14.12 says this. There's a way that seems right to man, but in the end, 
it leads to death. Psalms 1, 5, and 6 says, The wicked will not stand in the judgment, nor sinners in the congregation of the righteous. The Lord knows the way of the righteous. The way of the wicked will perish. I don't care how it seems. I don't care if you look to the right or to the left and it looks like the wicked are prospering. The wicked do not prosper in this life and they do not do well in the life to come. They will be judged. The wicked... If, let's just think about this because you know this. I don't even have to tell you. Do you know that riches don't make you happy? Everybody knows this. Money doesn't make you happy. Yet we all want it and yet we're envious of it, Right? It's this contradiction of life. It's this contradiction. So we look at those and we say the wicked seem to prosper because we look at the money and the things and the life they have. But here's the thing. You don't need good theology to know this. Life tells you this. Money doesn't make you happy. You also don't need to recognize that things don't love you back. Your nice car, your nice house, if you had enough money, the yacht, the the holiday, the vacation, those things don't love you back. They can't. They're things. There's only one thing that loves you back, and that is relationships. First of all, we're made for a relationship with God. You're made for a relationship with others. When you live in a wicked way, you ruin your relationship with God, and you ruin your relationship with others. Let me just tell you, the money that you're making, the things that you're doing, they don't provide happiness from the money, and it doesn't provide you happiness in relationships. You might have the praise of men, but without the praise of God, it's nothing. The praise of men is all happy one day, and I promise you, when you fall, they will be right on top of you the next day, talking about how bad you were. The praise of men is fickle. They don't have true joy or peace, because true joy and peace only comes from God. And the scriptures tell us that we actually can be content with much or we can be content with little, but you know who actually makes us content? God. When it was asked of Henry Ford, who began to see his empire growing by creating the first Ford and making the money from factories producing more Fords, and they said, how much is enough? And he said, just a little more. He had all that you could want, but we still want more. Do I need to tell you? Your life experience tells you, but I can show you biblically, the wicked don't actually prosper. It's just our messed up heart that looks and is envious and wants what others have and looks in a a moment of discouragement and a moment where we are dissatisfied, we look and think, man, they have the good life. Let me just tell you, they don't. You know it and I know it. I don't have to prove it anymore. But they they don't have the good life here They will be judged in eternity. It will go well for those who fear God. I'll give you two reasons why it goes well. This comes from Psalm 73. If you have time, take a look. This is a wonderful passage. This is a psalm of Asaph. If you want to pronounce it as Asaph, it doesn't matter to me. It's from that guy. He wrestles with the very same thing that Solomon does. I'll quickly walk you through. It says, I was envious of the arrogant when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. And then he says, in vain have I kept my heart clean and washed my hands in innocence. He's thinking, why should I even be good if the wicked have all the fun? And he says, when I thought how to understand this, it seemed a wearisome task. Does that sound familiar from Solomon? Where he says it's vanity. When I've tried to process this, he says, my mind, it shorts out, it short circuits. 
And he says, until I went to the sanctuary of God, then I discerned their end. How they are destroyed in a moment and swept away by utter terrors. Here is why it pays to fear God. You guide me with the counsel. Afterward, you will receive me into glory. Why does it go well for those who fear God? In this life, God will guide us with his counsel. God will give us all that we need to be able to live, the, uh, the, uh, live God's desire and will no matter what our circumstances. And let me tell you, those circumstances, you'll be on the mountaintop and you'll be in the valley. It'll take you to both. And afterward, God will receive you into his glory. That is the anchor that I told you I wanted to give you. The sledgehammer, I want to knock out that lie that somehow the wicked prosper because it is a wicked lie. They don't. Not in this life, not in life to come. And I want to give you that soul anchor so that when your, your little ship of life is on the seas of this life and it is getting tossed and turned, you throw out that anchor and you remind yourself it will go well with those who fear God. Why? He will guide you. He will bring you into his glory. Let's pray. Father, open our hearts to receive your truth. We confess that all of our hearts at times wrestle with these difficult questions and things. Remind us that it will go well with those who fear God. You will guide us in this life. You will bring us into your glory. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen.